Good morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2, if we go back about three weeks uh, as I was preaching, I was preaching about events and things that took place between the resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. And so three weeks ago, we looked at the ascension of Jesus and all that that means to us. Jesus had told his disciples to go back and wait in the city until they had been clothed with power from on high. And so we have that period of time, that 50 days between Passover and Pentecost. And so we looked at those events, but today we are to the day of Pentecost, and that's what we want to look at today. The day of Pentecost, folks, is the birthday of the church. So when we do birthday time during <laughs> announcement time, maybe we ought to sing happy birthday church because today is the birthday of the Lord's church. Not everybody knows the answer to that question. Not everybody agrees with that. There are some who believe the church began back in the days of the Old Testament as early as the time of Abraham's son Abel and just continued on through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then there are others who say, well, I believe the church began when Jesus started calling out men to come and follow him. And so all those that continued to follow him, that's when the church began. Well, obviously, both can't be correct. The church could not have begun in the days of Adam's son Abel and also during the ministry of Jesus. So which is correct? And the answer, of course, is neither one. Because late in his ministry, perhaps only eight months before his death on the cross, Jesus spoke of the church as being in the future. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 13, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's when he began to ask his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they began to give him all the answers based on public opinion, all right? Some say that you're John the Baptist that's come back to life. Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded. Others say that you're Elijah that has come back to life. The prophet Malachi said that Elijah would come. Others say you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of Israel that had come back to life. Or some of the other prophets that had come back to life. But then Jesus asked that important question, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter made that great confession, Thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, the rock, that confession that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock I will build my church, will build, future tense. Notice he didn't say, I have built, as if it was completed. He didn't say, I am building, as if it was already in the process. He said, I will, future tense, build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give unto you, as he speaks to Peter, the keys to the kingdom, and whatsoever you loose shall have been loosed in heaven, 
And whatever you bind shall have been bound in heaven. What do you use keys for? To unlock a door. Right. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter took the keys of the kingdom that God had given him and unlocked the doors to the church. Unlocked the doors to the kingdom of God. Jesus had been preaching, even as John the Baptist did prior to him, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the doors were unlocked on the day of Pentecost. Peter pronounced the terms by which people could enter, and the church began on that day. So Jesus died, he was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, appeared for a space of about 40 days. He told uh, just before he ascended into heaven for the disciples to go back to Jerusalem, stay there till they've been clothed with power from on high. So they're there for 10 days. The day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit came upon them in a marvelous way. In Acts chapter 2, tells how Peter preached a full gospel message, concluded his message by giving an answer to the question, what shall we do to be saved? And with his answer to that question and the response of some 3,000 people, the Christian age was ushered in and the church began. Not in the days of Abel, not in the days of the ministry of Christ, but on the Pentecost following his ascension. So happy birthday, church. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 2 this morning. Three simple points today here on our Decision Sunday. And by the way, this is Pentecost Sunday today. If you follow a religious calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday. But we're going to notice, first of all, how the church began with this mighty miracle in Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered. Because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, are not all these that are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, They're full of sweet wine. So the church began with a mighty miracle here, folks. At the time it occurred, the apostles were together, perhaps in an upper room there in Jerusalem, and there, by Jesus' command, they had been waiting for those ten days to be clothed with power from on high, as the Lord had put it. It was the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three required feast days for every Jewish male, age 20 and above, to attend. It kicked off what was called the Feast of Weeks. 
It celebrated the beginning of the wheat harvest and thanked God for His provisions. And so it always took place the day of Pentecost on the day after the seventh Sabbath following Passover. Now, the Sabbath is always the seventh day of the week, a Saturday. So if Pentecost was always on the day after a Sabbath, that meant it was always on Sunday, the first day of the week. Absolutely. But suddenly as they're there in that room, this sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven in verse 2. It doesn't say there was a mighty wind, but there was a sound like a mighty wind. Filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then they saw visibly what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and rested upon each one of them. If you've ever seen pictures, uh, artist depictions, you've seen those little tongues of fire that would be above their heads. They were filled with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. They began to speak in languages that they had never studied or learned before. Of all these different dialects of people that were there that day. Now folks, we ought to thank God for the mighty miracle with which the church age began. And I think it's altogether fitting and proper that it began that way. When God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, there was some visible, God-produced, natural wonders that the people could see as evidence that God was there, He was present, He was at work. Exodus 19 says, There was thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud upon the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, and it says the whole mountain trembled violently. The people were aware of the presence of God. They trembled themselves, were filled with fear. So isn't it altogether fitting that on this day, the day of Pentecost, when God is going to announce through Peter the terms of this new covenant, this new testament, this new dispensation of grace, that he would accompany that event with signs and wonders. In particular, as the Holy Spirit comes and these men begin to speak in all of these languages. This was... This occasion was not the result of random chance. On each Pentecost for hundreds of years, the giving of the law had been commemorated by faithful Jews. And on this special Pentecost, around A.D. 30, the law was being replaced by that which in every way was its superior, a covenant of grace. But what was the purpose what was the purpose of the gift of tongues here in enabling these men to speak in all of these languages? Well, for one thing, a very practical purpose, it enabled all those different dialects of people to hear the preaching of the gospel in their own language. But even more than that, this miracle authenticated what was taking place. It proved to the people there wondering what was going on, this has to be from God. There is no other explanation for this. Yes, there were those who said they're just drunk. They're full of sweet wine, which Peter's going to discount here in a moment. But no, this was something that authenticated the message. By this miracle, God said to those people that witnessed it, as well as to all people of all future time, 
look here, all of you, something great is happening, something that I am causing to happen. I'm giving birth to my church, so everyone take notice. So the church began with a mighty miracle. Secondly, it began with a marvelous message, a magnificent message. Beginning in verse 14, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a message. God provided the miracle, but man proclaimed the message with which the church began. And Peter took the keys and opened the doors to the kingdom. Now only Peter's sermon has been preserved for us. 
In fact, not all of Peter's words have been preserved for us because he spoke many other words that day, according to verse 40. But this part of his message has been preserved. And an examination of his message shows that far, far from being an exercise in shouting or some display of emotionalism, which some people consider real preaching, <laughs> no, Peter's message is intelligent and it is rational. It begins with an explanation of the miracle. These men aren't drunk. It's too early in the day. He grounds it in prophecy. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. This today is the fulfillment of that prophecy. It relates facts concerning the life of Jesus. He says in verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God performed through him in your midst. And you know that. Many of those people that day probably witnessed several of the miracles that Jesus had performed. They'd probably seen him make the lame man walk. Some of them had seen him give sight to the blind. Some of them ate some of the food at the multiplication of the, of the loaves and the fish. They had witnessed these things. His message focuses on the central truth of Christianity, which is what? The central truth, the foundational truth of our faith is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 24, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we, those 12, were all witnesses. And the message concludes with a dynamic claim for Jesus that necessitates a response from the audience. These Jewish people were not told to believe in Jesus. Isn't it interesting? He didn't tell them to believe. He told them to repent, which we'll see in verse 36. Why didn't he tell them to believe? They already did. These are Jewish people. This is a Jewish feast day. How long have they believed in a Messiah? For hundreds of years. They believed that the Messiah would come. They didn't need to be told to believe. Peter's message tells them what? The Messiah came and you, you killed him. You murdered him. And Peter concludes his message, This Jesus that you murdered, God has made him the Messiah. Talk about a slap in the face. Talk about being shocked back into reality. Is it any wonder at the response that some of them made in verse 37 as we get there? And then this message, as we'll see in verse 38, accurately and adequately answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Answers it very clearly. This message as a foundational message, makes it clear that Christianity 
It's not some mystery religion that stresses the, the esoteric or the abstract. It is not an occult religion that exalts supernatural influences that are beyond human comprehension. Christianity is not some emotional religion with a chief emphasis upon feelings. Listen, folks, Christianity is a rational religion. Its message is an intelligent message, and it demands an intelligent response. It's reasonable. And even though it was not, quote, an emotional sermon, I believe there was sufficient emotion in Peter's sermon for his audience to to recognize his earnestness in preaching it. In the words of the 17th century writer Richard Baxter, Peter preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. That's the kind of preaching God always wants. So we see here a magnificent message. But then lastly, we see a marvelous response beginning in verse 37. When they heard this, heard what? They heard the message and heard the fact that God made Jesus the Messiah, the man they murdered. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So Peter's earnest preaching brought forth a marvelous response. Just like this great concerto, his sermon builds to a crescendo, finally reaching its climax in those words, therefore let all of Israel know for sure that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And such a claim to these Jewish people required a response. One of acceptance or one of rejection. And for some 3,000 on that first Christian Pentecost, the response was one of acceptance. We think, wow, 3,000. Talking percentages, a very small percentage of the people that were there that day. There would have been thousands upon thousands in Jerusalem. 3,000 of them heard and accepted the message. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Folks, that's the most important question that can be answered. And upon its answer hangs the fate of the world. And what answer did Peter give? Well, don't do anything. Just wait till the Holy Spirit touches you. Right? No. All you have to do is believe. Just believe. 
Well, we already mentioned he didn't even tell them to believe. They already did. Peter said, just live a good moral life and make sure that before you die you did more good deeds and bad deeds and tip the scales in your favor. He didn't say that either, but let me say there's a lot of Christians who actually live their lives believing that. They may not say they believe it, but that's the way they live. But we're not saved by works, folks. Peter didn't say any of those things. His answer is very clear and very specific. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Turn around. Sin takes us away from God, and we want to come back and be in relationship with God. The turnaround point is repentance. A change of life, a change of mind about Christ, a change of direction, brought about by godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, I believe it is, it says that godly sorrow worketh repentance. A godly sorrow for sins. I met with a little nine-year-old boy this week who wants to be baptized, not sure just when that's going to happen. But I asked him, how does it make you feel to know that because of the wrong things you've done, it caused an innocent man to die? Immediately his response was, guilty. This young nine-year-old has a depth of insight that few nine-year-olds that I've seen have. He is a thinker and has good insight. Repentance, the turnaround point. Repent and be immersed. Oh, but Bill, it says be baptized. It doesn't say to be immersed. Well, you're correct because those that translated the scriptures chose not to put the meaning of the word there. They just put the word but not the meaning. They didn't translate it. Baptism, the Greek word bopt, baptizo, literally means to immerse, overwhelm, submerge. Repent and be immersed in water. That's the way for the first 1,300 years of history, that's the baptism that was practiced. Immersion. Because they, they, they knew that's what it meant. Repent and be immersed, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, meaning by His authority, so that your sins may be forgiven. Nothing magical in the water, but that's the time when God chooses to cleanse you from your sin. He brings you in contact with the blood of Christ, and God does His work. We are accused of teaching salvation by works because we believe baptism is essential. Baptism is not a work. Baptism is not something you do. Baptism is something done to you that you submit to. You're the one that hears the message. You're the one that believes it. You're the one that repents. You're the one that confesses. But you are not the one who baptizes. You don't baptize yourself. It's done to you. You submit to it. Baptism is not a work. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence comes to live inside of you through His Holy Spirit. And then Peter continued to preach, continued to exhort them. He said, be saved from this 
perverse generation. If he called his generation perverse, what would he call ours? Yeah, oh my. For sure. In a day with all the gender issues and the sexual immorality and mass murders and shootings and the sanctity of life that so many just consider nothing, so many issues, so many, so many things that are endorsed and promoted in our culture and in our world that are diametrically opposed to the Word of God. Oh, how important is it for us to tell people what Peter did. Be saved from this perverse generation. And some 3,000 of them were. And verse 41 says, Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Added to what? The church. The birthday of the church. What a marvelous response. What a great beginning for the church. Now, lest you sit there and say this morning, and send in Gloria, Gloria, I looked at Gloria and said her name. Gloria, you can come up and play if you want to. Now, lest you say, well, Bill, that message was for those people some 2,000 or so years ago. That's, That's not relevant to me. You better notice what it said earlier. When Peter said this message is for you and for your children and for who else? All who are far off, as many as the Lord himself shall call. That's you and me. So this message is still relevant, and the terms of salvation have never changed. So if you're sitting there today in 2022 wondering, okay, well then, what do I need to do to be saved? (laughs) The answer is simple. You do what they did. The same thing. The message has never changed. You repent and you be baptized, immersed in water for the remission of your sin. You do it in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of everlasting life. Now I guarantee you we're not going to see 3,000 respond today in this service. That's obvious, right? But is there one? Christ would leave the 99 on the hill and go in search of the one. Because even one is so precious and so important. Christ died for every person here today. He will save every person here today if they will accept him as their Lord and Savior. You know what you need to do? You need to take that next step. That may be to come and accept Christ as Lord and Savior and be immersed today. We have water in that baptistry. It is warm. We have clothes for you to wear. We have towels for you to dry off with. Everything's here that you need. You can walk out of here today saved. The choice is yours. Maybe you've already done that, but you're looking for a place to call your home church. We'd love to have you as part of the New Hope family. We'll welcome you. You'll get some hugs and handshakes, all right? And we're not perfect, 
But we're trying to live by this book. This is our authority. We are governed by biblical authority here at New Hope. Maybe you've just turned away from the Lord for a while and you've not been following Him as you should. You were immersed, became a Christian years ago. Maybe you need to make this a day of recommitment to Him. A day to start over, to start afresh. You can do that. Maybe you simply need prayer or to have some people pray with you. You can come forward and make that known as well and there will be people that will gather around you and pray with you. Take the next step whatever it is, you as we sing this song, this hymn of decision, just get up, come out, come down and meet me right down here in front. Let me know what your decision is, and we'll go from there. Let's stand.